Hi, everybody. Welcome to another interview episode of Games My Mom Found. I am Mike Hubbard, and who's with me tonight? Hi, my name is Daniel Kabuko, and I'm a 25-year veteran of the game industry. I've worked for Crystal Dynamics, worked with Codemasters, and worked with currently working at Sony PlayStation. Nice. <laughs> and thank you again for joining me tonight. Yeah, for sure. Oh, hey, first thing I... Because I hadn't found you actually in a Legacy of Kane group, because one of the one of the positions that at least I feel like you're probably well known for, you were the art director on Legacy of Kane Defiant. Yes, that's right. I was lead character designer for the first two games. Oh, for Soul Reaver and Soul Reaver Two. Mm-hmm. Okay, all the good ones. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean Blood Omen One is a good game. I just I didn't enjoy it, but it's a really good game. Well, sure, there was a definite transition that had to happen between Blood Omen and Soul Reaver. Oh yeah, and Soul Reaver is a, still a really good PlayStation One game. I'm glad it holds up. I really do. I played it last year for the for the podcast. We did an episode about it, which is my first introduction to that series. And even playing it in 2020, it's still still a very good game. Yeah, I really the dialogue, the art, the concepts, the ability to actually put in like what I consider fun and interesting ideas and art all held up, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, one of the first things I wanted to ask you is how did you first get into working with the game industry? Sure. Okay. So I was first going to school in Pasadena at the Art Center College of Design. And I responded to an ad for someone looking to make a Nintendo game. So uh, this is this dates me a little bit, but uh, this is back in the Super Nintendo days. And a company uh, called Technocrest hired me uh, to help them translate a game from the Nintendo 64 to the Sega Genesis. And it was a game called Lufia. Uh, it, was, oh. it was a really cool Japanese game. Now, a lot of stuff happened, and unfortunately, I don't think the translation ever really fully took place. But we, I did learn a lot about video games at that time, including like all of the restrictions that went into making 8-bit games for consoles because of their extremely limited power. What they were, if, as long as you stuck to the rules, it was really amazing to stick in there. And after that, that company started to fold, and so I looked around and found Nova Logic in Calabasas and went there and worked on Armored Fist and Comanche, F-22 Raptor, a lot of other military games because that's another hobby of mine is I like military uh, vehicles, and it was fun to get in there and actually be able to model up, um, you know, and create textures for military vehicles on both, like, actually on the, both the West and the East. Okay. And after okay. that, I basically got into uh, into uh, Crystal Dynamics to work on Soul Reaver. Nice. Were you, cause I did I did want to ask you, had you played Blood Omen 1 before you got involved with Soul Reaver? <laughs> I did. I played Blood Omen back when it came out, and I remember grabbing it at E3 and playing it with a controller, and just being interested in certain aspects of it and being slightly disappointed in other aspects of it. I liked the gothic nature of it, the dialogue, the voice acting, some of the abilities you had, uh, but I felt the graphics could have been better, especially having come off worked in 8-bit and knowing all the rules. When you have like a console with a lot more power, you're just like, wow, you could have done so much more, but you know... It just depends on which angle you're coming at it from. I came from a very restricted angle, and then seeing it as a huge opening, some people come at it from a very high angle and saying, oh, look at all the way the graphics are restricted and things we can't do. So if you come at it from the top, you're basically not going to see many possibilities. But if you come at it from the bottom, where you're basically like, oh, I wish I could have done this, I wish I could have done that. When you get to a console with more power, suddenly all of your possibilities open up and you start seeing more than you can do. So point of view is really important. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. For sure. Oh, and as I was saying, I think I as I was, as I as I know in your IMDb, you're an art director. What does that mean? As an art director do? Partly, I I know a little, but not much. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I like to say that an art director is several roles, but it's mainly like herding cats. Uh, <laughs> you basically <laughs> take the written design, no matter how vague, and basically organize it into data that can be acted upon. For example, if someone gives you a high concept, my job is to take that high concept and turn it into a viable artistic creation, which is firstly using concept design and art, all the artists there to sort of suss out the ideas and design and look, visual design rather, and look of everything, and then to work with the team to build the 3D look of the, of the entire game. So every aspect is covered from environment to character, backstory, user interface effects, all those oh. things that are touched by the art director in terms of vision and look. And I coordinate with the creative director, lead designer, lead animator, you know, everybody in the team, sound effects, basically to create a cohesive look and design. So it's sort of like being a conductor more than anything else. You establish the the look and the feel, and you basically conduct an orchestra to get the piece created in harmony. Okay. That's pretty cool. 
I mean, it seems like yeah. a, it sounds like a lot, though. But I mean, it goes a lot in making a game. I know that from what I've seen. <laughs> oh, absolutely! It's really grown from what it was before, and it takes a lot of efforts on a lot of different people and a lot of teamwork as well. You know, I like to say that it's not just one person doing any of this stuff. You know, a lot of times people, a single person, gets a credit for a game or something like that. But honestly, it's a huge team and a huge team effort. I see my artists sort of like my instruments in terms of like being able to coordinate them and get the best out of them. My job isn't to, you know. Get in there and, and do the work for them. There's a very funny term, but I won't repeat it here because okay, no you know it's a dirty word. But pixel effing, basically, <laughs> you don't uh, do that because the artist will never learn, and all you're doing is exercising your ego. What you want to do is is nurture a team and bring them about. So a lot of times you are working to make what's best for the team happen. So you're part coach, part counselor, part cheerleader, <laughs> you know, part designer and guide. A lot of red penning, a lot of drawing over stuff, but you, you give up a lot of your own personal input in terms of like direct creation in order to affect the greater look of the game. And it's a very sacrificial role in that aspect. Okay. Do you get a lot of the final say as an art director, or are you just kind of finding out what works um, the best? Yes and no. It depends on how how involved the other, other leads are in it. For example, if the creative director is heavily vested in some aspect of the character's look, then you, you would have to balance with that the idea is off of that creative director so that you get the final say. However, if it's something minor, like, you know, what a wagon wheel looks like, that's probably something that will the buck will stop with someone like me. Okay. What was, what was your favorite game to work on so far in your in your career? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know you had done a lot, but there's I've a lot of games. Really um, okay. Yeah. So I really enjoyed uh, Legacy of Kane's Soul Reaver because that was basically me putting out the things that I enjoyed into the game. Everything I loved. All the gothic design and art, all of the anime, manga influence type stuff at the time, which is the 90s. So it was very much more like dark and violent type stuff. <laughs> the gothic designs, uh, everything from that, I got to pour into it and really enjoy and have fun with. I really enjoyed working on Buffy the Vampire Slayer as well because I got to work with a guy named James Goddard, D. James, who was a game designer for Capcom who did a lot of stuff for Street Fighter, including he uh, designed characters for Super Street Fighter. Like the new characters are added Fei Long, Cammy, and DJ. Antioch. And basically, he was a great little designer who could basically get in there and create frame advantages and knew exactly how to apply 2D frame advantages to 3D. So he and I worked really closely together with the animators to capture the stunt coordinator's actions for Buffy. And being a a fan of the show at the time, I got getting a chance to meet the stunt people and understanding where they came from. And I have a a slight martial arts background. I'm taking a few classes Mm -hmm. and getting to meet this crew and understand where they came from, the lineage of their martial arts background, which kind of goes back across the Inosano lines and across the, the Hong Kong lines. It was pretty great to see and, and do, and that was a lot of fun. And yeah, and, and you know, even stuff like Rise of the Argonauts was a lot of fun, too, because it's like kind of changing the traditional perception of Greek line, you know, storylines. And the most recent one that I had a lot of fun with, at least on, on my own, was Lost Planet 3, because I had a really great crew, and everybody was fantastic that worked on it. And then... But, and then I, you know, I've worked on a bunch of Sony projects recently, but I've been a little more re- removed in my input on that stuff because yeah, there's no, so I mean, many people involved. <laughs> but I, I will say, Death Stranding was fun to work on because I got to meet a lot of really famous people and scan them. So that was great. Thank you. I get to play that, but it looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It sure is. It sure is interesting how it worked. And you know, story about a global pandemic and a delivery man. <laughs> how relevant is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's very relevant. I know. It's like when it came out, we're like, what? What is this? And then. Everything happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's Kojima. I mean, I was playing Metal Gear Solid 2, and I know there's like a prediction in there about how the internet will take over and people will trust what they see on in the you know without being verified. I'm like, huh, that's funny. Well, even, even the rise of private armies was something that he predicted, which is happening now, which yeah. is Metal Gear very Solid interesting. 4. Yeah, yeah. Well, did you get to meet Kojima when you worked on? Several, oh, yeah, we worked together okay. several times. He's a really nice guy. So I'll, I'll say that there are almost two sides to Kojima. On the one side, when you first meet him and, he, and you're just kind of parallel to him as a person, he's a really nice guy, super humble, hardworking, and, and really just amazing. And if you work with him professionally, he's very exacting in his standards. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly how to get there. And he will hold your feet to it if you don't mat- match that vision. So he can be demanding in that respect, but it's professional demanding. and It's, it's respectful. It's not like he will put you down or like that, but he will, uh, he will demand the best from you because he knows what he wants. Yeah, he seems like. I mean, I I love all his games. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's why they're so. Good. I mean, I know, I say that you know one person gets all the credit and it shouldn't be the case, but Kojima does get credit for you know creating really unique storylines, really unique uh, character designs, and and 
just neat situations and being really prescient in terms of knowing what's going to happen in the future, what's going to be important, yeah, which is. is really cool. Oh, but um, on the Rise of Argonauts theme, were you able, did, with it not being a being a new IP, were you able to really kind of direct how you how the characters looked and kind of like the style they were going for? Yeah, that took a little bit of time because uh, when I got to them, they had already done their vertical slice and it was really it was really odd in terms of like some of the choices they had made. So I had to kind of adjust it a little bit, adjust the design from what they had had. But yeah, it was Rise of the Argonauts basically had a really cool kind of just just features that we kind of enjoyed bringing up, you know, taking things like Greek theater masks and designing those into the into the soldier, the enemy soldiers. Those guys were originally just one group of, of enemies, and we liked them so much, we started using them everywhere because, first of all, you'd have to have any facial animation, which is nice. And then, uh, <laughs> secondly, uh, they were just cool. Greek theater masks are very disturbing. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and there was one episode where these people just walked around in Greek theater masks, and it just terrified me as a kid. So, um, <laughs> I'm a fourth doctor kind of guy. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it really scared me, considering because the nature of the show was more like theater because of the way it was shot and the way it was lit. So, it just, it just really brought home that disturbing feeling. And so I used that, that feeling to kind of draw upon it for the designs for the enemies. And then taking things like, you know, um, what, you know, the, the traditional creatures like, you know, Pan or Hercules might look like and kind of adjusting that to just, you know, different proportions, different designs, just changing people's expectations. We're told as a mandate to just challenge the traditional expectation. I know like the design of Hercules, he's like just hugely buff, but it, it fits the character. That's yeah, that's really Hercules cool. Yeah. It was fun, too, because we actually enabled his hand to have the same property as a mace, so that sometimes when you see him kill somebody, he'll actually explode their head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the same as your mace does, because it basically has the same properties. That's cool. Were, yeah. were you a fan of Greek mythology before you worked on the game? Absolutely. You know, you can't... I don't think you can get into this industry without being a fan of some kind of mythology. I'm a big Dungeons & Dragons nerd. I've followed Greek mythology since I was young. Uh, love the stories, lo- love the lessons behind them, and I love their understanding... Just how, you know, how it always didn't end with a happy ending. You know, it always had some kind of crazy, crazy uh, punishment involved, you know. So like Prometheus or, you know, just uh, just how everybody was was in some way had, had a tragedy behind it. And that that was fun to kind of delve into. And I like the I like the design of the Greeks. You know, it's 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 the basis for a lot of design that we use up until recently, up until postmodern, up until modernism. Yeah, Greek design was used a lot in architecture. Even today, the way we are, we do our proportion system is based on Greek design. So, it, golden mean and all that kind of stuff. So, it's it's knowing those kind of thoughts that went into their stories and their their visual design. It was just it's all dessert for me. It's like just a lot of fun. <laughs> I've always loved the mythology too. That's what drew me to that game when I randomly just picked it up. I've actually bought it like four times. Oh, really? Are you four times? <laughs> yeah, I only played it once, but I bought it on different systems. When I yeah. find, like, a used game store, I bought it on Steam. I keep meaning to go back to it, because it just, it stuck with me. It's been, God, must have been over seven years since I played it, but it's one of those things where I remember enjoying myself, but I don't remember much about the game. It's just something that I've always, I had a good time with. It's something I want to go well, back I'm to. Glad. We worked really hard on the combat system and making sure that there was a lot of fun to be had in the game, you know, and, and that when you get in the Argo, it basically is this ship of wonder, and at the time, we didn't have technology to put like a thousand men on it. They were all rowing, so we had to change it somehow. But it was sort of taking cues from Mass Effect and other types of games along that line to kind of create different islands and different places to visit. You know, finding color schemes that worked for each of the gods and then assigning their islands accordingly. There's a lot of tie-ins uh, visually and symbologies that we created. I, I basically laid out a lot of mandates that said, look, this, this island, this god, this color, this symbol reinforce it you know and then so you know sparta and Ares being aligned you know just those kind of ideas was, was really important it's definitely one that i've been talking about doing on the show at some point because i want to <laughs> i want to have a reason to go back and play it again yeah yeah it's great it's, it's a lot of fun to work on you know it's, we, we got to change some things around of course that would normally be part of traditional and kind of be worry reverent in our changes but at the same time it was if you just do the same thing that everybody was expecting you're probably not going to have something interesting because yeah. everybody just knows it already, and you know, it, it's you had to try to put something different in there. One other question, or one thing I wanted to ask you: I also saw you worked on Lost Planet Three. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a title I've never dived into yet, but mm-hmm. I I played the first one. And I'm, I I liked the series, but I wanted to ask you: Were you are you a fan of kaiju's and mechs in that type of world? Absolutely, sure. I mean, that's my second love. Right? It's okay. since I was a kid, I I was into manga and anime. I liked it before it was cool. No, it was, everybody <laughs> really liked it, and uh, 
Yeah, it was one of those games where we got a chance to do everything. We got to do uh, creatures and mechs and a, and a different planet. That's all fantasy. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is there's no downsides to this. It's all amazing. So we Lost Planet Three is actually a, a sort of a prequel to the first one, where we go back to the ice planet because of the second one, it all got terraformed and warmed up. But what we did was um, one thing I loved about Lost Planet was I tried to, to try to explain the ecology of a place. I don't try to just create a creature. Yeah, there's a creature is attacking you. I try to think about ecology. Um, being a big Dungeons and Dragons nerd, I always read Ecology of a Dragon magazine. To try and understand like how you know something like a beholder would live or something like that. So what we did was for the for the creatures, the um, acrid they're called. I was like, how could the acrid survive if you melt their planet and they become like you know these creatures that suddenly adapted to like sands and oceans and things like that? So I went back and I said, okay, what if the acrid had all the DNA they ever needed to survive? Like every single kind of acrid that you ever see, all their DNA is combined into one embryo, and whatever it needs to survive to adapt, it uses that DNA at the time, which creates wild variances. But that's how hardy they are as survivors. It's almost like the thing where every single cell is like fighting to survive. Because once we did that, it became a lot easier to create creatures that suddenly had massive adaptation routines. And so in the ice planet, we go back and say, okay, what kind of creatures would survive here? What would they become like? What would, what would the overall design idea be? And one thing we thought about and is, is basically creating a, an ecology, creating a world that lived on ice. So, so anything that created heat was food. And okay. creatures were designed to sense heat. So every creature didn't need to see well. It didn't need to hear that well. It just needed to sense heat. All the creatures have the, or some of them are blind, but they just sense heat. And so if you, anything that creates heat, like mechs or your spaceship or your base or your body, suddenly is food. And so that's how you'd survive in a world like that. And, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's one of those things where I, I kind of got inspiration from another artist. Uh, his name is slipping me right now. But he basically created, he created a book that basically talked about how you could you could create an ecology based on on what the environment presented first. So what they needed to survive, they would end up finding essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it, it basically creates that that idea that if you're going to create a planet, everything has to follow and possibly live in that world. So everything we're creating now, or okay for that, that series of games, is basically designed to to live in that world. You know, am, there are ambushing types, there are stalking types, there are high flyers, there are, like, you know, pack hunters, all of those things we kind of looked up on the earth, basically insect and animal, and applied those to the acrid in Lost Planet 3. Okay. And, and uh, for the mechs, uh, you know, we had a, working with Capcom was really fun, but it's also a little difficult. That the Japanese have a very aesthetic, very strict aesthetic for mech, which is very different from the West's aesthetic for mech. Uh, for example, I, I keep hearing from Japanese people that they hate the power loader from Aliens, but that's one of my favorite <laughs> designs. How you, resolving that issue was a lot of fun because we got to do all kinds of uh, shape design with them and talk to them about silhouettes before even going into the final design. So yeah, our, our, our uh, mech designer, John Park, was, he's an amazing designer, amazing. He did hundreds and hundreds of silhouettes for us. And because of that, we were able to create a, a design language that they could both like that would kind of be filled with details that we liked in the West. The mech that you have is sort of, is it's subconsciously designed to look like Someone with a, uh, a backpack on, you know, a Sherpa with a backpack on. And that basic design is what we use, like a T-shaped design. And based on that, the Japanese were happy. And then after we got into it and started adding pistons, you know, and all the different grungy things that we liked, then it became more appealing to, to Western eyes, too. Okay. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's one of those. It, it looks very cool from what I've seen in the game. I remember when it first came out and it grabbed my interest. I really liked the first Lost Planet. I was excited to see you guys go back to the Snow Planet again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but snow again. Mm -hmm. Sure, I do like that in my games. And one of the things I I feel like you're also very known for is because you were the, as I said earlier, you were the art director on Legacy of Kane, Defiance, and then you worked on the other on the Soul Reaver games. But my one of my big questions I want to ask you is, which one is your favorite, Kane or Raziel? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's hard. Uh, I love them both. I mean, honestly, I don't favor one or the other. Gosh, that's tough. Uh, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I don't think I can pick to be to be fair. Because each one has their own evolution. Lieutenant Raziel, Raziel, you know, human Raziel is all interesting for me. And then Kane's designs were awesome. And I always wanted to go back and do like a younger version of Kane in between Blood Omen 2 and, and what we have now, the Elder Kane. So I don't, it's hard to see. I think I'm a little partial towards Kane just because of his, his uh, I don't know, his, his attacks and design and stuff like that are fun. Raziel is also amazing. These, these move completely differently, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, it played, when I played it recently, other than the map issues I had, they both 
they both handle great and they both look I love the design of Kane in Defiance versus like how far he's come and the way that you guys designed him I thought was really good. I I love that elder vampire. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, that that design was based on Kane seeing himself as a god king and his body evolving to match that. It fits Kane though. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was very like that, very like that, very egotistic in a way and I can Yeah. Oh, I, I remember the artist named that who influenced me on Lost Planet and on Kane a little bit was um, Douglas Barlow. He is, his designs are amazing. And he did a, a, an exploration. He did a planet design that was really cool. And he also did a, this um, Dante's Inferno as a visual design. And I like, I like cracked you know, skin type designs, and Barlow is awesome with that. So yeah, it was something that really influenced me when I was designing Kane. Or oh, were you one of the people who was like personally designing like a lot of the characters, like Raziel or Kane? Were you, or they already kind of like pre how they needed to be at the point when you were taking over? No, I I designed Kane okay. uh, from scratch. I mean, he's basically nice. just I took the whole Blood Omen vampire version of Kane. In fact, everything from Blood Omen that came into Soul Reaver was sort of like saying let's let's consider Blood Omen the TV version and let's make the movie version of that. <laughs> so we would kind of up the design by just kind of really stacking on top of it. For example, there was this guy called the Nemesis, right? And he was uh, he was William the Just, and he became the Nemesis. And basically, his design originally was this red guy with horns, red armor with horns, and it looked really sort of generic to me as a design. And I was like, well, that's that needs something. It needs some reason to look that way. And so I looked at everything. I thought, so it's got horns and it's red. You know, what's red and has sharp stuff on it? And I thought, oh, roses. Roses have thorns, so you can use black horns as the thorns and roses as the as petals as the red part. So then I made him the William the Just, the king of thing of roses. And then he transforms into the nemesis. He still carries that design aesthetic forward and it works. So it made more sense that way. And that was sort of the thing, things we did. We basically tried to find justification for the designs we had and find ways to push it forward. And for things like Elder Kane, we were like, okay, well, Kane obviously had armor and spells and all kinds of stuff. But when he gets to a certain point, he doesn't need that anymore. He basically incorporates you know, stuff like the bone armor into his own skin. He's largely immune to, you know, direct sunlight now. It still hurts, but his armored skin can resist it. And he's got, he, does, he has telekinesis and stuff like that. So he can, he can crush you with his hands. He doesn't need spells like flay or anything like that. And he's got the soul reaver too, which is pretty much if he struck you with a full soul reaver with Raziel's soul inside of it, your bones would fly out of your body and then that's, <laughs> your soul would be devoured. It's like a nuke, so it's like it's a it's a horrible weapon, but it's also like it's only entirely too powerful for gaming. It's like one hit kills on everything, so that's why we had to change it. It's still fun in the final game, though. What we got? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I mean it it's definitely... great. We had to depower it up until the point where Raziel goes inside of it. And that that scene where you get to fight Raziel as Kane was probably one of my definitely one of my favorite moments in a, in a while in games. I was I was surprised when not often you can say the antagonist fight the pro, fight the oh, the word protagonist fights the antagonist. Yeah, it was sort of the protagonist fighting the protagonist, too, because you had to play them as both. So it was one of the first times we'd done someone had done something like that. I mean, other games have done it subsequently. I mean, even Last of Us 2 does that now. But back then, it was a lot of it was really fun to be able to create those two different points of view, set them against each other, and then, you know, fight uh, in in that way and see what what kind of powers they would have and what kind of abilities would would matter. It's just just a lot of fun. And neither character really felt like the villain. I mean, they're both had their problems, but it was just interesting the way it was in that game. Yeah, I think it was one of the first games to present villainy and heroism as points of view, as opposed to like strict rules of, you know, the hero is absolute good and the villain is absolute evil. It became one of those more gray areas where, depending on your point of view, you could see either one of them being right. And Raziel was a zealot, right? He was a zealot <laughs> who basically jumped from point of view to point of view, but with absolute certainty with his point of view. Which is where he eventually learned that, oh, God, you know, I'm just being an idiot about this whole thing. <laughs> like, you know, he was a zealot as a human. He was a zealot as a vampire. And he was a zealot as, as the, the Soul Reaver. And he would, only at the end did he realize that, you know, there's a, a balance to a point of view. And the whole time being manipulated by the Elder God. Yeah. Yeah. I think people still have problems understanding some of that stuff. So uh, I'm hoping to be able to clarify a lot of those issues, too, and with further... Uh, Further discussions, further creations that I'm going to do. With you the fans. involved with the Elder God design? Yeah, I designed the Elder God. Uh, basically, I painted that room up. The very first room you see him in, I painted that entire room by hand. Every uh, every eyeball, every tentacle, and created templates for the other guys to kind of blend it into the rest of the the walls and the world. With the idea that he is very active in the spectral realm, but 
when he you go to the material realm, all you see is what he's left behind. So almost like fossils. They're these things called crinoids. They're like these uh, old worms that basically leave behind these really interesting tentacle-looking stones as they fossilize, and it kind of worked for me as a kind of a a template for how the elder god might look in the material world. That's a very cool design, and just I love the idea of this. Of this is what's manipulating everything with the vampires, and it, if I remember correctly, manipulated what happened with the Highlands too for the humans. <laughs> if I spend a couple weeks in my play, but yeah, it was yeah. very cool to me. It's true. It's a demiurge, basically. You know, it's it's the uh, equivalent of someone coming in and saying, "I'm God," and whispering to you and saying, "You know, this is the word of God," but it's not God. It's something else. It's a demiurge. And to understand demiurges, you know, you have to understand the Gnostic hero's journey. And if you understand that, all this stuff comes into play. Everything that we have in Soul Reaver follows a Gnostic hero's journey. So if you even like just read about it, you'll see, oh, okay, I get it. So the demiurge is, you know, the uh, is the elder god, the Gnostic hero is Raziel, and he's destined to, you know, sacrifice himself at some point. So it, it was interesting because we were able to bring all that stuff into play in an interesting. All right, and then do you have a favorite legacy of Kane game out of the series? Oh gosh, it's hard to say. I really enjoyed the world of the first one, just because I love the City of Lost Children aesthetic we were able to put, like the lost technology that was almost almost industrial, like the cusp of industrialization before it fell apart, before it all fell down. And the vampires being able to carry that forward because they're immortal, so they can basically you know create more advanced designs following those initial human designs. Also, the difference in architecture between vampire and human was really interesting. We made the vampire aesthetic much more advanced based it on late Arabic, and the humans are still based on you know early medieval. So there was a lot of differences there, which were really fun to put in. And like, you know, if you lived a few thousand years, or a few hundred years, rather, you'd have a much different aesthetic than you would if you were you know, just 25 years old or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, each game has something I love about it, right? I love painting Raziel, his, his textures on the second game. And then when I became an art director, I'd let all of that go. <laughs> I'd basically just let someone else do it, you know? And can basically direct them from. It's almost like painting with a with a pair of robot arms, almost, and saying, like, "Hey, you know, do this, do that." And so it's not exactly what you would have done, but it's also interesting in its own way. Yeah, Soul Reaver was that was a I, I that was, was a really good game. <laughs> Definitely one that stood out for me too. Yeah, we were able to do a lot of cool things. I think just being able to go on a Spectral on a PlayStation One was really something new. Like people just had never seen something like that before. Being able to actually switch between worlds in real time on the fly without loading was something that no one ever thought was possible. I'm assuming it probably pushed it a bit to its limits for a PS1. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, we only had four megabytes of RAM. <laughs> so we, we had to be constantly streaming everything in and out of that poor little disk drive that I think it's a two speed disk drive or even one speed. I forget how, how slow the PlayStation one disk drive was, but there's no hard drive. So we had to just constantly be streaming it. You know, I think if the engineers had known how difficult it would be to create that technology they wouldn't have done it <laughs> but, <laughs> but they uh jumped into it we understood the working within those limitations was fun too like understanding like you know there's a lot of things we did to kind of create the look for spectral that were efficient you know we did vertex painting we stored two different vertex colors and so when you went from material to spectral we just swapped those vertex colors and kept the textures fairly desaturated so they could be influenced most by the colors of the vertexes so instead of painting in a bunch of color, we left it fairly towards the, the desaturated side. And that way, it allowed us to create really detailed textures because we could drop it to 4-bit instead of having 8-bit textures, which took up less memory. So they're essentially, not I wouldn't say grayscale, but close to it. And with 4-bit color, we were able to make a lot of textures in 4 megabytes. So that was fun. And we were able to create stuff that people hadn't seen on PlayStation. Like most of the time, one, per, one level has a set of tiles, and that's it. So people take one level, one set of tiles, and you see it repeated everywhere. Whereas we were trying to work against that so hard, we would stream in new textures all the time and really try to make those areas look different from each other as you ran around them. Blending them together, creating like little areas that you know, extended the streaming time so you had time to load levels. So that's why the hallways are really long and windy sometimes, or there's a door you have to look almost straight down on with a camera. It's because we're loading. That makes sense. I mean, that's become a normal thing in game, but... Well, even when I played Legacy uh, Soul Reaver for the first time last year, it, it still it still looks good. I mean, it's a PlayStation One game, but it still it didn't age as bad as some games I played PS One that yeah. just don't work as well. Yeah, well, just being able to create like a more detailed stone texture with a really cool sculpture and carving into it was something that hadn't been done before, really, on PlayStation. But the most detailed looks in games back then were like what Resident Evil, 
which was pre-rendered in backgrounds. <laughs> Final Fantasy, but that had just a lot of tiles, and it was a different point of view. It was like a different camera angle. So doing something from an action-adventure third-person point of view is one of the most challenging ways to make a game. And we really worked hard to get a look that no one else had ever seen before. A mature look, too. Again, most PlayStation games had very... They weren't dark and gritty like they are now. They were like really fun, almost mobile-type games that you see today. Crash Bandicoot you know, Spiral would have been around this time, I think. Yeah, exactly. Crash and Stuff Spiral. Stuff more mascot that would have been friendlier. Yeah, <laughs> and we used, we used Gex's engine, which is funny. But, oh, <laughs> I never played Gex, but I, I think I want to keep it that way. Though. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it's a snarky, fun game, but based on movies, so it's kind of interesting that way. One thing that surprised me to find is that I was really happy to see that you guys brought back one of the vampires, the one that was missing from the end in Soul Reaver. Well, oh, Terrell. Missing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, everybody was wondering what happened to Terrell. Being able to bring him back was one of the joys of my career. And, you know, we were always sad that we weren't able to, didn't have time to make him in the original game. So having him in there was, was a lot of fun. And uh, we had to change the design, of course, you know, it was just, it just didn't fit the, the design that we had originally with the dam and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we were able to build something that I think was like really cool in its own way. Yeah, all, I think there were either four or five brothers. They were all very unique when I remember them. Like, one was like very bug-orientated until we were one. Wasn't one like a stone statue or something? Yeah, it was a giant yeah, it's, vampire with armor. Another one was uh, made up of an amalgamation of bodies. <laughs> that, that was gross, but good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one was a giant sea monster, so... Yeah, that was an interesting fight from what I remember in that first game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Developing strengths in one area and weaknesses in the other. It was, it was interesting fun. Yeah, but it, it made me so happy to finally be able to kill that last one and get the last ability. It, it kind of like everything came around, which is what I really liked about Defiance was seeing the host. I mean, the series kind of wrapped up, essentially. I mean, I know that there hasn't been another one in a while. Right. I, I don't think there will be, I'm assuming. Well, uh, nothing's in the works now as far as I know, but I'm keeping it alive because uh, I'm like I said, I just opened a Patreon, so just doing that so you can create some illustrations and ideas uh, and some really fun things for the fans. And I saw some of your Patreon. Oh, would you want to, because I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that at, at the end of this. Oh, good. You Thank you. A, of course. Oh, you want to give a shout out to your Patreon where people can find you at? Uh, yeah, it's called Sanctuary of Cain, and it's on Patreon. Basically, it's got illustrations for mine. We're going to be setting up a Discord channel for talking to fans, uh, taking polls on what kind of artwork you want to see next from me. Also, we're talking about creating some merchandise, so t-shirts, uh, pins, those kind of things that people want to have. And also, maybe even getting a little into 3D design, because I have a few friends that I've worked with to try and redesign some of these things. And you know, a few surprises out there for people who sign up. And, uh, and also including original design sketches, too, and sending those out as, as scans. Nice. So I've opened up their sketchbooks, and you know, I did a ton of drawings for those games, so just opening those up and, and sending out those sketches as well. Hey, you're keeping the series alive in a way. I mean, a lot of people love Legacy of Kane. When I first covered them in 2019, the first Blood Omen, I had never really had seen the series before. And all, as I as I delved into the series for the show, people love Legacy of Kane. There's a huge fan base out there. Yeah, I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy about the, the fandom is amazing. And I'm also... I think something that happened that, that people responded to was that we assumed intelligence on the part of the player. We assumed that they understood certain concepts that yeah. we might not typically expect, you know, or were exposed to, could understand things, you know, like the, from the prose of this way that people spoke to the references to the Gnostic hero's journey, demiurges, ideas of good and evil, just the gray area in between, just putting all those things out there and assuming the player had the intelligence to both understand it, the maturity to read it and read into it see the symbologies, and I just layered the hell out of everything. I put meaning in almost everything in that game. And there's symbology and meaning that basically you can, you'll miss it the first time you play it through, but on the second or third time, you might see it on a forum, you might see it, you're rewarded for investigating. Oh, were you involved in the canceled project Dead Sun at all? No, no I wasn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I know that got canceled, but I, I looked up, there's like a trailer online of it or some gameplay, and it definitely did look interesting. <laughs> it was an interesting concept of what they were trying to do, and I understand fully like why they would want to do things a certain way i think the execution was a little rough like look, looking at their world their spectral world was a little strange and how they in, tried to introduce the character was also strange it, it felt like shadow of mordor is what it felt like oh. <laughs> but not quite as refined in terms of execution so i could see the potential of it but also 
it's the same thing that has happened a number of times is when you create a new character, don't kill off the other characters to do it. It's yeah. uh, the original Miles Morales comic book did that, which pissed off a lot of people um, <laughs> in the Spider-Verse did it much better like where they, you know, ease into the, the they, they killed off Peter Parker, but they brought back another Peter Parker. So it was, it was fine. But in the comic books, they just killed off Peter Parker. You know, that was like that sudden switch is like, wait, what? And everybody sort of reacted against it. So. Makes people angry when you kill off their favorite characters. Yeah, I mean, why? <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? It's like, there's opportunities for mentorship, opportunities for creativity there. There's no reason for it to be uh, adversarial. At least well, I don't think so. And one question that I did want to ask you is, what is your favorite game or like your style of game that you really like to play? Oh, I like uh, action-adventure third-person single-player single games. You know, Horizon Zero Dawn is one of my favorite games, just Great because game. of, it was so much more than I expected it to be. So much more. And I expected a lot out of it, but it was so much fun to set up traps and to, you know, uh, kind of outsmart the dinosaurs. And even the other people, it's fun to fight, too. And just being able to stalk and hunt, it was just fun. It's an uh, amazing game. Yeah, it was great. Let's I see. I'm, I'm a little biased because some of these games I've worked on, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but that's, that's hey, that comes still, it's still stuff that you enjoy playing, so. <laughs> yeah. Love Final Fantasy, Streets of Rage, StarCraft. Just trying to think about all the games I've, I've been playing. It's like Ghost of Shima, it's amazing. A lot of fun there. Yeah, I just th- those are all like really fun games to get into. I like third-person type of games. Uh, God of War, of course. The new God of War is amazing. Played that through twice. Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man game was... I was a big fan of the Spider-Man 2 game when it came out on PlayStation. I played it all the way through. Got 100% on it. And when the new Insomniac game came out, and they had the exact same feel of the web swinging, like it just felt that good, but even even better actually. I was like, they got it. They nailed the, the most basic thing about a Spider-Man game that you have to nail, and that's traversal, which is hard to do. But it, yeah, that Insomniac game was something else. Yeah, they were fortunate because they had experience from Sunset Overdrive, which made them a natural fit for that game. And once they had that going, it was just you know spiraling upwards. They just so many, so much amazing stuff for that game. But yeah, there are fundamentals to gaming. There are fundamentals to traversal, fundamentals to combat that you need to nail. If you don't, it'll feel bad moment to moment, and no one's going to play your game. Yeah, it won't be fun then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are principles to that. And the last question I want to ask you is, what has been your favorite project to work on or something that's really stayed with you? I mean, I know part of the answer, I think, but I... <laughs> well, besides Soul Reaver, I think... Oh, one game I, I worked on that really, unfortunately, didn't get made, but I loved working on it was Highlander. Oh, we you worked on the Highlander work. game? There was a Highlander game we were going to come out with. Yes, uh, for actually, 360 era, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it I, came out. Sorry, I'm a big, big fan of Highlander, so I didn't oh, know yeah, that. So I. <laughs> no, so am I. It was huge. We were basically put everything I had into that one because I was such a Highlander fan. And um, it was supposed to come out, you know, right around the same time as the first Batman Arkham Asylum game, maybe a little bit later. And unfortunately, it didn't get made due to rough contract negotiations with the rights holders. But... It was it was through IDOS and it was going to be an awesome like just we had so much going on with it we were able to um, create this thing called a memory echo and I might release a video of this just at some point because it's old it's all old now and it's all canceled but basically we had this ability to um, we added a little bit more to the lore like being able to absorb a, another immortal's memories oh so so we say you wanted to find out where an immortal's weapons cache was after you killed him you would have the ability to create a sphere around the player that would change the environment to what it looked like hundreds of years ago and sort of create what's called a memory echo. And using that, you can walk around and in real time, the, the world would change around you. So if you were in modern day Manhattan or something like that, you go back to the old days when it was first built and see the old wooden docks and things like that. We did it with Japan and Osaka. And, that's- and it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun because and, and the main character memories too. I, that is the most... Fun disappointed of any game that i that i have followed that's been canceled with this one i was so bummed when i found out it got canceled oh yeah me too i mean i was so into it so like like i said i put my heart and soul into that game and that was one of my favorite ones to have worked on and we used some of that technology for lost planet 3 yeah there was a huge thing going on with uh actually i can send you a link too if you want to see the what some people talking about it on the highlander podcast my old ceo actually ended up talking about it which kind of opens up the doors and i have so many drawings and designs, so many great artists that, you know, have gone on to work on Marvel MCU stuff. They're just great artists, you know, and uh, there was so much to it that I, I loved working on. Yeah, but, you know, there was other... I had to say that there's a like, other game that I've hated working on. I've loved working on all the games that, that I worked on. There, Buffy was fantastic. I really enjoyed uh, the creature design we got to do there, being able to run around and recreate these characters that I loved, you know, and 
everything has just been. I feel super lucky that I'm not not bitter about the game industry at all. I've actually had a really good run, and really, I'm grateful for the people I got to work with. I don't feel like I I burned myself out at any point. You know, uh, we were there. Was, there were late late nights. You know, there have been, but I just feel gratitude, incredible gratitude for being able to to work on these games and bring something to it. I mean, you definitely have. I mean, like Legacy Kano says, like it's it's had such a lasting effect on something that you helped design or did design. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was my honor and pleasure to have done that. You know, it's if I can you know get another chance like that, another shot at a game like that, I would count myself like you know, quadruply lucky. And it's just so rare to be able to be able to put something in a game, especially nowadays when there's so much such big teams. Back in the day, in the '90s, you know, it was the Wild West. You could shoot from the hip, and <laughs> your design just made it in the game. <laughs> but you know, nowadays it's a little different. Yes, yeah, huger projects and more people involved. I'm assuming from the old days. Absolutely. Well, technology has changed so much. Right. Exactly. It is not a lot that we can um, that, that we can affect in such a large manner anymore. Concept artists have that ability, which is nice to create the look, but they're not going to do the final execution. And 3D artists get the design and get to put stuff in the game, but they also have a lot of input from a lot of other people. So it's it's just a lot of different back and forths. Oh. Not to say that a good game can't be designed and made. Obviously, they're making great games now. So it's it's just a matter of uh, more coordination and, and more consensus by a group. It's going to be so sad now thinking about the Highlander game. <laughs> oh, I'm I glad can, you I mentioned can, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I could... You know, yeah, uh, just hit me up after this. I'll I'll tell you more about it. Okay, yeah, no, I I understand. I I've got so much I can tell that. you about. Yeah, I no, I can't it's, stop thinking about it. <laughs> I love Highlander. I, honestly, I love Highlander. It's a great series. It, it 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 has meant so much to me over the years. I with just I watched the whole series and just the way that everything was, and I felt that like that show itself did such a good job of showing somebody that who had to live like this and the and the good and the bad of it. Yeah, exactly. And immortality has always been an interesting subject to me to examine. Because it, what we consider, uh, you know, uh, normal in our lifetimes would change greatly over the course of immortality. You know, uh, I think Anne Rice said it best that you know most people don't have the stamina for immortality because uh, you see the world around you where everything's changing and you're just the same. You know, or you have absorbed so many different ideas that by the time you know a century rolls around, you're such a different person than who you were at the beginning of that century. Hopefully, you've grown. And if, or you're, you're very static, it depends, you know, it just depends on your point of view and what you want to be. So any kind of idea of immortality is interesting to me, like longevity, uh, because what matters to you, what, what lasts, what, you know, what you can do, how much power you can build, what your interests are, those all are going to evolve in really interesting ways. So for Highlander, we had all the immortals basically laid out in like different ways, like different points of view. And then we just extrapolated them ad infinitum to see what they would do, you know? Someone who's essentially imbalanced and, and, and violent maybe grew more peaceful over time, but then still had that ability to just rage or turn into or, or turn it a different way. Became more sadistic with the world, wants to see a burn. There's a lot of different things you can add to uh, a person's portfolio of ideas. Yeah, and that would have been something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too bad. And also, animating the, the quickening is also nice. <laughs> it's really so everything, cool. gets, everything gets to explode when you cut off somebody's head. Like, yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how it was in the show. So it works. Yeah, it was great. It was it was fun. It was it was it was just. I think, like I said, it was about having fun with the game. It was about having fun with ideas that that sort of pop out and being able to say, like, hey, this is a cool moment right here. Let's focus on this and see what I can do. And by absorbing memories, we were able to transfer so much more information in interesting ways. You know, because then you get points of view as well. And that 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 I think was one of the most interesting things I worked on in terms of. Oh, my career. I'm just, you know, hopefully I can release the videos someday and then show them because I'd really like to. You got my attention, though. <laughs> Very much so with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also there was like different groups. I mean, you, you, if you watch, you watch the TV show, right? Mm-hmm. The whole series. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the Hunters and all those guys and people who knew you were immortal and how they would attack you versus other people. When, one thing we did in Highlander was to, was to try to make death matter was to, in any video game, when you die, you know, you just get reset like a few, you know, to your last save game. And in a way, death doesn't matter because you'll just restart from your to try again, hopefully without a long reload. <laughs> but one thing you wanted to do in Highlander is if you lost a sword fight and quote-unquote died without your head getting cut off, you would have a, a, a moment where the people were taunting you, walking around, cleaning up, and then basically you would, you would come back to life. <gasps> you know, and basically you'd stand up again, and then they would react to that and freak out. <laughs> and that would give you a chance to kill them because that, that was what we wanted to do is make death matter. In order for immortality to matter, death had to matter. 
And to make death matter, we had to make it meaningful. So when you and coming back to life, meaningful subsequently. So we did all kinds of stuff like that. Oh, another mechanic we had, I forgot to tell you, this is, sorry to go off on this tangent. Oh, no, you're good. I am. I did talk about Highlander. No problem. The main character we had, it was a woman on this one. Uh, she she had a ravine and she had to cross and she couldn't cross it. There's no way she could cross it. She had nothing. To, all she could do was uh, take a deep breath and jump off a cliff and basically land, you know, do whatever was going to do to her. And basically we had her like landing in camera, basically, basically with her neck broken and her body shattered. And then <gasps> coming back to life again and she's like, slowly getting up and popping her bones back into place and her joints back into place. You know, just taking all this damage because she could. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, but it sucks, though. You know, she's like popping her neck back into place. It was just really gruesome. But we called it beautiful damage, basically, is our, <laughs> our rule for it was. The rule that I created was called beautiful damage. And that yeah. we couldn't get too gruesome, like no bones sticking out of skin kind of thing. But we could basically twist someone's neck in really weird angles and then have her go <gasps> and pop it back. Which was a lot of fun. It was again. It was like one of those cool moments where you're like, "Oh, oh my god, you got to have a lot of fun with this." <laughs> that sounds very cool. Yeah, it was. It was amazing fun. Maybe one day we'll we'll get a Highlander game of some sort. <laughs> hopefully, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah, with sometimes license properties, I'm sure that's got to be a, a hell to go through when it comes to depending on who owns what license or. What yeah, well, the, <laughs> the problem is that uh, the rights holder is. Uh, yeah, he's basically he he's of the old school type of designs where. He basically wanted a lot of money. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, for the designs, and you're like, yeah, no, nah, no one's gonna pay that nowadays. That's an old property too. Yeah, exactly. And he basically thinks it's you know worth a certain amount, but most game companies aren't willing to pay licensing fees anymore. The days of licensed gaming for for properties is long gone because it doesn't work. There's no there's there's no correlation for someone seeing a property and wanting to play it as a game. Even even like Lord of the Rings had a hard time with it in terms of you know capitalizing on the fame and translating that into direct game numbers versus other games which have been just as successful if not more so so if, if and also you don't, you don't own the property too like if it, even if it's a successful game you don't own that property so for the game company that's less interesting less appealing for them because they don't have the rights you can't really re-release it as we, as we've seen many times in history now yeah exactly so it's better for the it's better for the rights holders to be the game company so that they can re-release it or to have like seriously exclusive rights to it which makes perfect sense i mean why you get a lot of new ips and everything yeah for sure for sure i prefer anyway because then you get more from that series when they own it right exactly okay that's all the questions that i had for you is there any last things that you might want to say i think we covered most things i'm assuming um yeah no just i'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to be able to speak with you it was fun oh, thank you <laughs> thanks mike appreciate it uh yeah we should do it again sometime yeah, i'm definitely up for that i, I could talk highlander all day by the way but Oh, yeah. First thing I want uh, before we wrap up, if you want to give a shout out to where people can find you on your Patreon. Yeah. So if if you uh, go to Patreon and look up a Sanctuary of Cain, you'll uh, basically find out, like where I'm at with that. So it's uh, it's it's basically uh, right now it's just started, so I'm still putting stuff out there. But it's uh, high res paintings that are going out, sketches, scans from the ske- original sketches, Discord talks, and merchandise are all being designed. So it's all a chance to actually have input on it. For people who sign up, they can actually have input on this design and what's coming up next for me. So uh, something like maybe making vampire portraits for all of the lieutenants and setting that up as a series so that people can frame them and put them up. And then finding ways to print those things. Um, one thing I'm really interested in doing, uh, I just have to explore, is making a lenticular uh, spectral painting of Raziel and have, being able to have it changed because that's one of my things I've always wanted to do was lenticular painting. And then actually, I kind of have a hologram that kind of changes as you roll it back and forth in your hands. Wow, that sounds really cool, especially Orazio. Yeah, exactly. If it's a Soul Reaver, it just sort of. We, I wanted to do that with the original Soul Reaver cover. And I talked to marketing about it and said it was too expensive. And then they went ahead and did it for the European <laughs> version. I was like, ah, oh, you guys, look what Europe's doing. Because they had different marketing teams. And the European oh, team okay. was like, you have to do this. And I'm like, why? But yeah. But what I guess in different countries, different areas. So, but. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of like really gorgeous like fan art out there. I'd like to give shout outs to those guys too. They're all doing amazing work. I just saw one that was a group that made uh, the Soul Reaver intro in Dreams, and that was amazing to see. So it's 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 all happening. It's all uh, just stuff that uh, I'm hoping to just again be able to contribute in some small way to the fandom and be able to uh, continue some of the cool stuff that's been done. Uh, even stuff like exploring the storyline after after the series of Defiance. Or maybe seeing like way ahead of time and maybe doing some some small graphic graphic comics for it. Okay. 
uh, hey, it's a people love the series, and it, it it's changed a lot of people's lives. I feel like from what I've seen in the Facebook groups. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was uh, totally has. It was like something that I think, I think still has a lot of power to this day because again, we didn't treat people like idiots. We basically treated them like intelligent, uh, thoughtful individuals who would understand what this story had to offer. <laughs> defiance, I can definitely see it in Defiance where it didn't work out so well for me because I was being an idiot at that game, but I can see what you mean. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if even in the storyline, if someone were to say something to you and not have to spell it out, they give you a chance to talk about it with other people and see like, you know, what the greater messages are or the symbologies or those kind of things. Yeah, definitely. And again, I want I want to thank you for coming on tonight with us. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. <laughs> Talking about this. And if you yep. enjoyed this episode, definitely go check out all the other Legacy Kane episodes I have covered. We did Bloodoman 1, episode 19. In the 40s, we did Soul Reaver 2. I want to say it's in the... I did not pull this up beforehand. <laughs> but we have covered the whole series, episode 119, with the last one with the fine. So definitely go check all those out if you haven't heard those yet. You can hear as we progress through the entire series, one by one, over <laughs> the course of two years. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk about the series and... and- Hopefully, with my Discord channel, I'll be able to even point out Easter eggs and things like that. People maybe things things people maybe have missed, and be able to talk about those. I'm sure people would love that because I'm sure there's a lot of Easter eggs that that I missed and when I played through the series. Oh yeah, no, it's it, it's fun. It's, you'll only be rewarded for it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you enjoyed this episode, please go check out all the rest that we do. We do comics, we do movies, we are going through the MCU films, so definitely go check those out. We are almost finished with those with that series. <laughs> And if you like our intro outro, courtesy of Bobby, a.k.a. Mike Stoney from ZP Bite the Bullet, Song to Cool Kid Squad, you will see a link in the show notes to his YouTube channel. Definitely go check him out. And we will see you guys all next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.